Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. Amy received her PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. She is Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, Illinois, and an Associate Rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva, Illinois. Amy is the author of You Are My Son, The Family of God in the Epistle to the Hebrews, and co-author with Patrick Gray of Hebrews, an Introduction and Study Guide, both published by TNT Clark. She is an active member of the Institute for Biblical Research, Society of Biblical Literature, and a fellow with the Center for Pastor Theologians. Her current research includes a commentary on Hebrews and a monograph on gender titled Women and the Gender of God, both with Erdman's Publishing. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. I'm so glad to be with you. Oh, thank you. We're filming this on a really cold day in Chicago. Yes, I can hear the wind screaming outside my window. So (laughs) yes, yes. Now, why that is pertinent for our listeners is that Amy and I used to be jogging buddies. And we would not jog outside on these uh, very cold days. We did more the elliptical in the gym. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes. I still drive by that gym most mornings (laughs) and think about going there with you. (laughs) Oh, we had so much fun. That that was great. Um, well, you grew up, uh, and you know, I know you went to Oklahoma Baptist, but did you grow up in Oklahoma? No. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Born and raised. So born in Southern Oklahoma and then grew up in the Oklahoma City area. And you uh, you spent some time in at Oklahoma Baptist, graduated from there. And if I'm recalling correctly, that's kind of the place where you started to see yourself in academia and kind of taking... Uh, more of an interest in the life of the church? Yeah, that's right. Uh, My mom is a teacher, and so I think I was one of those kids that always imagined myself as a teacher, but I didn't know what I wanted to teach until I discovered biblical studies, and that was a little bit late for me. I was a junior and took some electives in biblical studies, and really within the first week or so of that fall semester, I said, "Uh, this is it. This is what I want to do with my life. Uh, Though, interestingly, um, thinking about the church really wasn't on my radar. I remain committed to the academy and the academy alone. I mean, of course, I'm attending church, but never saw myself serving there until the last year of my PhD. So that was a significant time later. Wow. Yeah. Let, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because you went on for your MDiv and then your PhD at Princeton. So you're thinking, I'm going to teach, I'm going to be in the academy. And then all of a sudden you started to think, well, wait a minute, what about leadership in the church? What what kind of transpired to make mm-hmm. that happen? Yeah, I'm. Uh, my husband also serves in the church. He's an organist and has served in some capacity our entire marriage. So that's a, a twenty plus years at this point. And so I'm going always... to put a plug. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm <laughs> going right to put ahead. a plug in. He is awesome. We had a chance to share um, his, uh, his in a church and enjoyed his. Uh, it was incredible. So. No, he is pretty talented, but he has always had a job in a church. And so as I was present there with him and I was an MDiv student, I started being asked to do things in the church. And as I'm discovering my continued love for scripture and maybe some gifts for um, 
you know, teaching leadership that I thought were headed toward the academy, his kind of work at churches and my invitations made me start thinking, well, why wouldn't I also use these gifts that I'm discovering in the classroom? Why wouldn't I use them in the church? Uh, the kind of the magic moment for me came when a friend asked me to do her wedding. And I was like, well, I can't do that. I'm not ordained. Uh, and that was really the kind of invitation that got me thinking in a more serious way. Wow, yeah, that really, you know, it's these experiences that that cause us to look deeper or to, mm -hmm. to ask different kinds of questions. So what right. what were your next moves? Well, we were in a period of transition then because I was, we both were finishing up our PhDs. His is in liturgy and we needed to find jobs. And so we ended up at Indiana Wesleyan University. I had a postdoc there in the Honors College. He was teaching Honors College and the School of Music. And so we needed to find a church and we were invited by several of our colleagues to a small Episcopal church in town. And they were faithful in preaching the Bible. They were faithful in ministry among the homeless and in a very kind of economically depressed area. And we just thought this community is doing it all. And it was there as we joined uh, that church. And that, that's a longer story of how you move from Baptist to Episcopalian, but that may be for another well, day. That is a, <laughs> maybe you could sum it up because that was going to be my next question. That right. seems like a wandering path. But... Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think we, well, in, in some ways in rural Indiana, there aren't a lot of Southern Baptist churches, which is how we had grown up. So that wasn't an option, an easy option. And I think more deeply, we had, through our studies, become very enamored by and even drawn to a connection with church history. Uh, while I appreciate in the Baptist tradition, there's an emphasis on personal response and personal relationship. I never want to lose that. Uh, we, I think, were looking for a tradition that put us in line with the great tradition that comes before. And that was displayed. And also um, an appreciation of a higher forms of liturgy, more formalized forms of worship. We're also really attending to our souls at that point. And so that that's at least a part of the story. We, To be honest, we walked into that church the first week in October. We had visited several others. And it was that sense of, oh, now we're home, uh, which is I've heard others say, and I realize it's not for everyone. But for us, it was a sense of, oh, yes, this is the place to where we've been called. Uh, and then we've never left. <laughs> no, wow, that's that's really great. And I think we'll probably come back to mm -hmm. some of your experiences as an Episcopal mm -hmm. and with the liturgy and all of that as as we talk about your scholarship. Uh, while you were at, at Princeton, um, you were especially looking at the book of Hebrews. Right. And um, you have produced a book, your dissertation, um, mm -hmm. entitled You Are My Son. And you also have a co-authored work with Patrick Gray on an introduction to Hebrews. So right. that's really been where you've lived for a long time. Definitely. Yes. Uh, you know, you enter into New Testament scholarship and kind of have to make a choice where, what field are you going to land in? And I had always been drawn to the epistles and always very intrigued by Hebrews. Even as a teenager, it was a book that I read often. And so when I was making my decision, I wasn't as brave as some uh, who think who do head right into Paul. Paul seemed a little crowded to me. And so I thought, you know, this book is really beautiful. And I was uh, working with a mentor, Ross Wagner, who works in Old Testament in the New. Hebrews is so rich in Israel's scriptures. I wanted to stay attuned to that. And so I thought, this is the direction I want to go. And then a class on 
rhetoric and attention to the citations. The first citation speaks of God's fatherhood. That led me down the path to exploring that theme in Hebrews. Right, right. And you you focus on that familial language and the fatherhood of God being basic to uh, to Hebrews that uh, from the title, You Are My Son, uh, you know, picking that up. Um, But I have found in my, uh, I don't know, over the last two decades or so, at times when I'm talking, especially with talking with women, they're reluctant to use the language of father. often for very personal reasons, mm-hmm. um, to talk about God the Father. Um, why why are we sometimes reluctant to do that? Or what in your experience have, have yeah. you come across? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And because I do speak on this topic at times, I've had the chance to encounter people who say, my personal experiences of my father, either abusive or absent, make using this language incredibly difficult. And that is a an issue, a critique, a challenge that I think the church needs to attend to. It it shouldn't just be dismissed. There's sometimes literature that says, well, this is what Jesus, the language Jesus uses, so we have to do it. I think we really have to listen to what's going on inside a person and attend to that. That was a tension I was sensing myself because at the same time that I was investigating uh, the identity of God as father in Hebrews and finding this incredible richness. I was also reading feminist theology that was helping me see some of the deep problems with masculine language for God. And it was really at the end of my dissertation in my defense where I said, I want that to be my next project. I want to listen to these critiques. I do think they're still good in this language as it is displayed in the New Testament and I want to put these things together and investigate them. So I kind of always knew that's where I was headed. My dissertation really focuses on Hebrews itself and more an exegetical focus. Then I wanted to move in that theological engagement next. You know, as you think about the fatherhood of God, um, there's also, and you bring this out, uh, Jesus is the son. So the two ideas definitely go together, Jesus as son and Jesus as brother. Right. You know, I think of Hebrews talking about Jesus as the high priest, which is very important, but you bring out the son and the brother aspect. What mm-hmm. are some of the important things that you found in Hebrews that we just need to keep in mind as we think mm-hmm. about who Jesus is? Yeah, that's really well said. It's that powerful verse there in chapter two. He was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Uh, and especially after chapter one, the most excellent, right, eternal king he's not ashamed to call us siblings. That's incredibly powerful. And I do think it's an aspect of thinking about who Jesus is that is maybe muted at times, or at least we don't, it's not as present before us. So I think that's vital, but you are precisely right. This sonship language that I think prevents some of the dangers or the difficulties of fatherhood language. I I think about it this way. If we say God is father, then that statement can be interpreted very much through one's own personal experience for good or ill. The New Testament always affirms God's fatherhood, not in some general way, but as the father of Jesus Christ. And so it is that template, that relationship, which is displayed really beautiful in Hebrews. God gives this amazing inheritance to the son. God also disciplines the son, and that becomes the template for the relationship for all other believers. We too are looking forward to an inheritance of salvation, and we too should expect God's discipline. But I think that specificity gives us the window through which we should look at God's fatherhood and not just make it 
anything we imagined fatherhood could be. Yeah, I find uh, you're absolutely right. The the way that Jesus is drawn in Hebrews, mm-hmm. um, he, he's not a flannel gla- uh, flannel oh. uh, flannel graph. <laughs> right, figure. right. Sorry, that was a tongue twister there. <laughs> you know, he's not two dimensional, right? Mm-hmm. He really that that idea of learning obedience through yes. suffering. Um, why is that an important aspect of understanding Jesus for us? I mean, you hinted at that, but could you fill that out a Absolutely. little bit? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is, as you know, Hebrews um, has no introduction by which we learn the author, right? It is the text in the New Testament that is quite a mystery. It's not like it was questioned in the 1800s. There is no statement at the beginning of who wrote this. And so there were some challenges to its canonicity, But I think at the end of the day, it was accepted because it holds together the picture of Christ. Absolutely God, right? The radiance, the imprint of God's being and absolutely human. And they're actually right next to each other in chapters one and two and then fleshed out for the rest of the book. But that human aspect that though he was perfect, he became perfect. (laughs) He learned what it was to obey. You get a sense that God's mission of salvation, and and by God there, I mean the the triune God. Here I'm using language from the tradition, but I do think Hebrews displays a common will among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the reconciliation of all things. God's will for, for that, the Son manifests, and the Son takes on a human body and suffers and dies in that human body to bring that salvation. So his process of really experiencing, I mean, it's Hebrews who says he's, he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And I think if we linger for a while on the tempted in all ways uh, and his groans and cries to the one who is able to save him from death, we get a deep sense of Christ's emotion, Christ's struggle, Christ's true humanity in Hebrews. And I think throughout the history of the church, including some spaces of the church now, that's an easy thing to forget. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Right, right. It, um, and, and unfortunately, then that creates a distance, right? It uh, precisely. creates a distance. Yes. And, and uh, we lose that, the promise mm-hmm. that we actually have this brother who is also yeah. a high priest. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Interceding for us. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, you, you had mentioned you, you really wanted to explore uh, this aspect of fatherhood of God, mm-hmm. and you've done that now in a book that's coming out. What month? It's this year. Do you know when? Uh, they're, thinking? they're thinking October, Great. and I think we're on track for that. Okay. And will the title be Women and the Gender of God? It should be. It's gone through the titling committee four times now, so I oh. think we've landed. <laughs> okay. Okay. Women and the Gender of God. And your, I love the uh, dedication, mm-hmm. um, which is in Greek, my soul magnifies the Lord mm-hmm. uh, in the text, because you've shown me the, the uh, like the galleys, almost exactly. the galleys there. Right. But your first sentence, God values women. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that that's where you're going with this, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that is what drives this book. So... Tell us a little bit more uh, about this packed sentence, (laughs) God values women. Um, Yeah, and this, uh, I mean, I was at my dissertation defense now um, almost 12 years ago. It'll be 12 years uh, this spring. So in some ways, I have been working on this project for over a decade. And, And I sometimes get embarrassed about that, that it's taken me so long. 
But then at other times I reflect that the life that I've lived in those 12 years, I think makes this book what it will be, what I hope it will be. Um, so there is so much packed in there. In the spaces where I've existed, right, which I've been at Wheaton now for 10 years, I come from conservative spaces of the church, evangelicalism, though that term is complicated, I would identify there. And so I have encountered many, many, many women who raise questions about women's role in the Christian story, not just what can we do in church and what can we not do in church or what do our homes look like, but why does scripture seem so dominantly about men? Uh, the language for God seems heavily, heavily masculine. The roles of the really important people are men. Is there a place for me in this story? And it's those office hour conversations that really motivate and drive this book. And, and in some way, my own personal experience of sensing what is God's call on my own life and living into that. Uh, I recognize in that sentence, I always, um, I, I'm worried that I'm going to exclude someone. I think if you kind of look at personality analysis, I'm very much an includer. So that doesn't mean God doesn't value others. Uh, but my particular call, I think if that language is not too strong, is to proclaim this message that God values women. Even if you've had questions or doubts about their place in the story, I want to proclaim this good news to you. And um, I am confident of it. So I want them to hear um, in the stories that I recount. And I do focus in this book on the story of Mary, uh, her role in the incarnation, that I think that's the place to begin uh, for asserting or supporting that assertion of God's valuing of women. You know, it almost seems like to me an unnecessary statement to say that God values women. Like why, why do we, mm. why do we even need to say that? But of course mm. we do. And, mm. and you point out, we just get God wrong, mm. right? We think God is male and that's mm. where then this need to explain that in fact, God values women. Mm. We think God is male. So, mm. what, you know, that, that's a, problem. <laughs> yes. You know? Right. Right. And, and, you know, I do a lot of, of work in the book to nuance that because I think if I were to say a lot of people think God is male, an instant retort would be, well, no, they don't. You know, any kind of a barely mature Christian knows that God is not an old man floating in the sky, right? You move past this pretty quickly. But I wasn't quite satisfied with that answer because while theologically this becomes a given, well, God is not male, there are ways in which there are those many, it seems, who argue for a preference in God that God is really more masculine than feminine, the qualities of God, the way that God interacts, that's more fitting to describe as masculinity than femininity. And then what that ends up happening is that, well, yeah, okay, of course, God's not male, but then there becomes a preference for men that they are viewed as a bit more like God than women. And this, I think, explains why the church has so frequently failed women, right? We have the Imago Dei. Uh, we have the wonderful things that Jesus does in his ministry, but there is a pretty ugly track record of how women have been treated in the Christian church. Now, I want to be very careful there. There's also amazing things, right? There's amazing stories, people who, who find their greatest value here. And I would put myself in that category. But we have to be honest about the bad things that have happened and have continued to happen. And I think that's, that's a 
to me, a, a major piece of it. Well, women are a little bit less like God, so it's easier to treat them poorly. You talk about uh, here in the in the book, you talk about how even if God is not male, we can think that males are more like God. Mm, right. Yeah. And that's yeah. the this idea of masculine. What are mm. some of the traits that people say, oh, that characterizes God mm -hmm. and that's also masculine? Right, right. I found a great deal of that in thinking about God as creator. Uh, that, And I think there's some element of, of helpfulness here, but that God and creation are two very different things. There's an infinite qualitative divide is a language in theology. And that is right. Um, but when we think about how men and women procreate, and sometimes that is used as an analogy for God's creation. Well, when we think about that, there's a lot of differences there. It's not that men are independent from their children as God is independent from creation, right? They still contribute part of their DNA for the creation of this child. Now in pregnancy, there's a distinction, but not in the beginning of that life, not in conception itself. So that's a place where I think there needs to be much more thinking and nuance. Uh, sometimes God's transcendence or the fact that God initiates, this is another one that comes up quite often. I absolutely believe that God moves first, right? We don't choose our salvation. It's God who offers it to us first, that initiation. But why, I ask, and I do really appreciate feminist, um, not just theology, but just feminist studies more generally, that ask the very basic question, why do these things have to be masculine? Uh, and that gets into some, I think, some challenging parts of the book where um, I say, you know, initiation is masculine. Sometimes that's referred to how intercourse happens. But even there, I say that doesn't have to be viewed as the male initiating. Um, I, I really struggled with some of these portions of the book. My aim is not to be intentionally provocative but it really is to dismantle these assumptions that I think are so are so damaging. Oh, absolutely. And as I was reading your book, I thought of a of an essay that was written in 1991 by a woman Emily Martin mm -hmm. and it's called Egg and Sperm. Uh, and she talks about how I think she she's a biologist mm -hmm. or uh, along those lines, but she she looks at the um the ways in which textbooks describe oh, the, yes. the coming together of the egg and the sperm and it's it's so anthropomorphized yes so that you know you've got these speedy little sperms <laughs> scooting to this very passive egg and then you know diving right in um and in point of fact the the biologists know that's mm -hmm. that's actually not what happens yeah sperm are just kind of you know meandering and wiggling and the egg has certain properties that actually draw have the sperm stick and then pull it in mm -hmm. so when that is discovered there's another then story that forms where the eggs like the femme fatale you know and oh, like, wow. minute, you know <laughs> and and so there's either the story of the uh the the woman who's going to get you or the woman that's just mm. staying there but either way there can't just be this Here's, here's how egg and sperm come together uh, mutually <laughs> and, right. and there we have, you know, new life. 
right it's that that article and i did as a mm. you know, new testament person what do i know about biology but i did ask my biology friends on this yes. is this you know is this just a spoof or is this real like yeah that we we know that yeah um so i i just find in in a fun kind of way it's a very fun read uh but also a very poignant read it, it mm. serves uh, to illustrate your position that, in fact, we tend to just assume that the male is the initiator, right. even if the biology doesn't actually support mm -hmm. that. Right. Um, and, and so this becomes, you know, especially important as we think about how are we attributing attributes to God in a mm -hmm. way that privileges or, uh, or supports a vision of society mm -hmm. or uh, that that elevates some and and uh, lowers others. Right. No, I I did a lot of reading uh, about uh, both ancient ideas of conception, and I this is a great thing about being at a liberal arts college. I checked with my science friend faculty, and I understand what are the latest ideas on modern conception. But at base, Lynn, what you're helping us kind of see is this is i think writ large a problem in language for god those kind of moves of saying oh well this we understand how conception works that tells us what god is like as a father right it's a bottom-up kind of move and that takes me back to what i was saying about hebrews no no it must be defined by ultimately god's relationship with jesus christ that's what divine fatherhood is and then we can see this kind of desire to pair god onto human fathers that doesn't work <laughs> because God is God and no human is. <laughs> exactly right. And you uh, you talk a lot about, and you just mentioned a little earlier about the role of Mary in yeah, all of this. Right. So yeah, tell us a little bit about how the incarnation and Mary's mm. role in the incarnation helped you kind of work through mm. this understanding of God is, God values women. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could approach this from two anger angles. I'll start with maybe the chronology. So for several years, I was working on fatherhood and sonship. My initial idea was, I'll just look at all of those throughout the New Testament, see what I can learn. And again, it was a colleague and friend here at Wheaton. We went to grad school together, so we're longtime friends, Matthew Milliner, art historian. We were having Thanksgiving together because we couldn't travel home. And he said, wait, you talk a lot about fatherhood and sonship. Why don't you ever talk about the mother of God, Mary? And I was like, well, that's interesting. His own work is on the iconography of Mary in the Greek church. Uh, and I said, well, okay, maybe I'll start thinking about that. So that Thanksgiving conversation really completely changed the trajectory of my research. Uh, so that's how it began. But then I think in this, in this project, more, more substantively, if I'm going to make the argument that God is not masculine, what I really need to attend to the account as given to us in the narratives of Matthew and Luke, that God causes a child with a woman. That sure sounds like what men do and what fathers do. So I, I know that some have taken approach of, you know, there is some maternal imagery for God and we can think about that. And I think that's beautiful and helpful. I kind of wanted to go to the heart of the Christian story, the place where God looks most masculine and say, well, if God is not masculine there, then that affects everything else. And that has been really just a, a joyous discovery about the um, conception stories of Jesus that the authors, Matthew and Luke, skate very close to some dangerous territory, right? God looks like or could look like one of the pantheon of gods who impregnate women. 
And the way in which they account for that story emphasizes God is father. God is the father of Jesus Christ. And God is not male nor even masculine in the ways that we think. Uh, and so I think if we can destroy the, yeah, destroys the right language. That's intense, but I want to destroy it because I think it's false. If we can destroy the idea of God's preference for masculinity in the incarnation. We've gone a long way to do a lot of other work. Yeah. So how is he not male and not masculine when you read the story mm -hmm. of, of Mary, of the, of, um, the Annunciation. Yes, yes. And the Annunciation is such a weighty story. It's, but, and I think so many of the feminist interpreters, um, are, and I'm, uh, I'm so thankful for this, say this gets, this looks, this could look really bad. Does Mary have agency? What's going on? So I really wanted to engage with those critiques. And I believe the best reading of that account is that this is a non-sexualized event. And actually you'll find a number of interpreters that sign on to that. And so that removes any of God's maleness. This is not like the pantheon. And so there's no no maleness there. But even then in God's initiation and in his God's empowerment of Mary's agency, there are ways in which then that masculinity of um, initiation and creator, it, it emphasizes God does things that are reserved for God alone, and they're not like, they're not comparable to human human males. Uh, and then I think a very important part of that is her standing. Uh, it's often the case that when men are kind of put on the scale as more like God, then women's role is kind of um, circumscribed around that of motherhood, right? This is all you're called to be. Your body says you're to be a mother. If there's going to be anyone in the New Testament that is limited to her role of motherhood, you would imagine that would be Mary. But then in studying the breadth of her story, she plays so many roles in God's story. Prophet, proclaimer, she's influencing. Um, her body is the place where God chooses to dwell, but it's not just her body. It is her mind, will, motion, spirit, everything. So again, if we can kind of um, dismantle the idea of femininity that is often pen put on Mary, uh, then I think we can start to think more broadly about the calls that um, women can have. Yes, yeah, and I was was also struck by as you were describing uh, the event, the Holy Spirit overshadows her, yes, and and the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is now you know, in her womb, right? the human that will grow in her womb and be born. And there's a picture of Trinity here, yeah. the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity with one will exercising our redemption. Yes. yes. And that also uh, has no analog in right. human events. It yes. Precisely. Yes, that's that's one big there's too many people involved, right? <laughs> right. The father, mother, and a child, right? We've got now the the triune God that also presses against the idea of limiting God to just kind of filling in the role of the male. Uh, one other thing I'd love to say there, Lynn, if I might, another kind of I think power of attending more, especially to reading the early centuries of of Christian thought, which you, of course, are so well skilled at leading us through those. But they were insistent 
that the flesh of the son comes from Mary. I think when I started this, I was like, well, maybe Jesus is like kind of ex nihilo, just kind of created, and then he zooms through her womb. Uh, no, that is roundly rejected as no, if he is human, and we're really sure that he is, he gets his humanity from her and her alone. I mean, God, of course, uh, the Holy Spirit overshadowing and so works with her humanity in a miraculous way, but his flesh is hers. Uh, and I think that goes a long way too in the idea of who gets to look like and represent Jesus. Um, his embodiment, yes, he's male, but he's embodied with female flesh. There's a lot of interesting work to be done there, it seems. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, we might think on the surface that, you know, women are the beneficiaries of what you're saying, but I, I have to think both men and women are yes. the beneficiaries yes. of what you're saying. Why is this good news for us all? Mm. No, that's, yeah. And I'm so thankful for some friends who work in masculinity studies. One of my great friends from graduate school worked in that direction, and she's been very helpful with me just exploring that literature. But the the weight that's put on men, when you are more like God, <laughs> um, that is a heavy thing. And there's some very good studies that say that that's not that's not good for men. And I think some of the recent kind of failings that we've seen on uh, very public ways in the church, some of that is too much pressure. Um, only Jesus is Jesus. Let's let him do that work. <laughs> and yeah. we can all be in his image. Well, and, and you, you express this, I think, in a, in a great sentence that I'll quote here. When God's transcendence is deemed masculine, all humans suffer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and what is that piece about? Because now you're you're thinking not so much about baby Jesus or Jesus right. in the incarnation, but thinking about this God, the father, and then that transcendence mm. when it's deemed masculine, all humans suffer. Right. Yes. So, I mean, this I think there's many ways in which very ancient ideas about the relationship between men and women, that men are here and women are below. Um, and that that is so consistent. And I think still it remains under the surface of a lot of thinking. Then if you if you draw the analogy between God and creation, it's like men and women. Well, then that transcendence gets put upon men. And really that that compromise who God is, <laughs> that, that uh, doesn't allow us to see in fullness that God is God and we are not, that makes God a bit more like a creature. And then it does put this pressure upon men um, that they have to be God in some spaces. And for some of them, that becomes a power trip that then they can't resist. And for some, then they so constantly feel like a failure of living up to that, that also results in some deep woundedness. But I think when when all of us are united, uh, brought together at the foot of the cross before the throne of Jesus, that we allow God to be God and none of us have to kind of play that piece in the drama. I think that's a place for real health. Amy, if it's okay, I'll jump in here with a question. Please. As I've been listening to your conversation with Lynn, something that it's brought to mind is how important communication is and the power mm. of the words that we choose to use, whether yeah. it's, yeah. you mentioned earlier in our conversation, talking to someone who has experienced trauma in regards yes. to the fatherhood of God, or even Lynn brought up the science textbooks, you know, yes. it's, we sometimes I think forget the power of the words we choose to yeah. describe yeah. these sort of ideas. And so I wonder for our listeners who, um, 
find themselves in ministry of some sort, mm. uh, I can't help but think how important it is how we communicate these ideas, whether it's yes. uh, a Sunday morning message or mm. even with what you were just speaking about, you know, how we disciple men and women mm. and in those particular ministry areas. And this is such a deep topic that can also sound somewhat technical. And so how do we take these ideas and Mm. translate it into how we communicate this and disciple people in our churches? Mm. That's a fantastic question. And really, that's kind of another path that led me here. So there's a lot of literature about 20, even 30 years ago about what should we call God, these kind of debates about uh, language for the Trinity. And I am very comfortable with using as many descriptors for God as scripture gives us, uh, which there are many, right? All of the things that God does on our behalf. But I would, in a, in a church setting and other places, say that we do need to retain Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just because the tradition has done so, uh, and not just because that shows us the personalness, the personhood of God, right? It's not just ideas, but persons in a loving relationship with one another and then with us. But I I believe that when we retain the language of fatherhood, as challenging as it might be, and really that's going to be a pastoral conversation one-on-one if someone is, is struggling with this language that needs to happen, But I think that when we use fatherhood language for God as trained by scriptures, what we're actually saying is that we call God Father because Jesus did. And why does Jesus call God Father? Because in his incarnation, when he is calling out to God, he doesn't need to call God Mother because he already has one. And so father language for God is actually a signpost toward the incarnation. Now, that's a lot of mental work going on. And a tension that I feel in the kind of living this out in a church or school setting is that there's there's many theologians who have argued, well, if you use father language, but then you say, but you've got to think differently. It's not what you think it means. It's not what you think it means. You're negating. The thing that you're negating is always standing there. And I'm, I'm saying I'm trying to do something different. We call God Father because, yeah, God is exactly what a father is. God caused the, a new life of a child, the son, uh, a new life being in his incarnate. Of course, he's eternal, but cause a new life. So God is father like we think of fathers. This is why we call him father. In fact, I think in uh, what we are given in scripture about the eminent trinity, right, outside of the economic trinity, the, the coming of the incarnation, God and Jesus could have related just as parent, begotten and unbegotten, or parent and child. We get the specificity of the gendered language in the incarnation itself. And the gendered language points to his coming on our behalf and coming, as Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, being born of a woman. Now that's a whole lot of work. What I try to do in my own setting, and it's something actually you heard me slip on a moment ago, is I try as best as I can when I'm speaking of God the Father or the triune God to refrain from using masculine pronouns. When I'm speaking of the Son, I'm very comfortable doing so. I'm not always perfect on that, but I would urge especially church leaders, please use Trinitarian language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Talk about the birth narratives, not just at Christmas, but what that says about God's coming for us. But maybe the constant kind of him, he, he language for God the Father, I think could work to support some of that masculinity that I'm trying to get away from. I don't want to depersonalize God, but I was trained at an institution that 
uh, ask us to step away from that language and it is possible. And so that's one very practical thing that I've attempted to do. The other thing is, I mean, scripture, as Lynn mentioned earlier, has plenty to say about God's valuing of men and women. If women are in the text, preach them. It's that easy. Like, it's not hard. Just pay attention to when they're there. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have a tendency to only preach texts you like, well, start using something that busts you out of that system and just preach them as frequently as they are there. So helpful. Thank you, Amy, for giving us words to talk through this. I love it. Yeah, this is this is a great book. It's one that uh, that that's coming out. Um, it, it's a great book. It's uh, thick, but it needs to be thick because mm -hmm. you're you are taking on uh, uh, questions that have perplexed and pained mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people, including mm -hmm. a lot of women. I'm going to finish with a, a quote here. When Christians call God Father, as Jesus did, they invoke the revelation of a particular way the son came. This father is not male. This father is not masculine. This father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, partnered with one human, a woman, to achieve the salvation of all things. Calling God Father proclaims the unparalleled role played by the young Jewish girl named Mary, the mother of God. Yeah. yeah. And uh, while you can't completely sum up one work, I think that those few mm -hmm. sentences really carry the burden yeah. of what you're trying yeah. to uh, to say. Any mm -hmm. any uh, final words on that, Amy? Uh, Lynn, I'm just so honored that you took the time to to read closely. Uh, I'm, I'm truly honored by that. And my my prayer is, I mean, the, the, the Greek at the beginning, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Uh, in the class I teach with Matt, we teach a class on Mary. We have our students memorize the Magnificat. We say it or chant it together at the beginning of every class period. Uh, and that is my prayer, that God would be aptly and completely magnified uh, by those whose eyes are open to the love that God has for us in Christ. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that good word and for your good work uh, in this book. I know it'll be a blessing to those who are um, uh, wanting to go deeper mm -hmm. and to be stronger uh, in their faith and more faithful, we hope, to, uh, to what the word has. There's always new things to learn. So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're grateful for that. So thanks so much, Amy, for joining us today on the Alabaster Jar. Oh, it's been a joy, always. So grateful for you, Lynn. <laughs> You've been listening to another episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler, you can find more of her work at amypeeler.com, which we've linked for you in the episode description. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode for you to enjoy.